Welcome back to Quality Attempted. Today we're going to be doing our uh, audio commentary slash watch along for Blowout, which is the second film in Brian De Palma's American Jello trilogy. So I'll be watching this on my purchased uh, digital copy from uh, iTunes or Apple TV, whatever. So I'm going to say three, two, one, play, and then we're going to hit play. Okay? Three, two, one. One, play. And should be hearing Leo the Lion, who was very loud. So this film um, became my favorite film, uh, oddly enough, November 2019. It was previously Blade Runner, which takes place in November 2019. So that was always just a fun fact here. Uh, we have the Filmways opening, which was a studio for making this film, and we go right right into it this is how dress to kill ended uh with a similar pov shot and this is uh garrett brown who's using his recently invented steadicam uh recent like within the last few years and we are treated to the most over-the-top uh slasher movie shot by brian de palma ever uh they said they were laughing every single time but we have the pov of the <laughs> the knife and you know kind of the audience stabbing the uh, officer for the voyeurism, but we we're also being voyeurs. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock was like to play around with that. Um, the song for this on the soundtrack was Crazy Coed uh, Disco. And you'll hear that breathing. You'll hear that breathing once more at the end of the movie. Uh, not at the end of the movie. Uh, very coming up soon. So, uh, what I like about this cold open is if you're unfamiliar with the movie, you have no idea what you're about to be watching. And De Palma always says at the beginning of the movie, anyone's ready for, everyone's ready for anything. So set the standard. And then we go into that first couple who walked in and they're having sex. Um, one of the funniest things is when she starts screaming, the guy mistakes it <laughs> for an orgasm. <laughs> she has to fight it <laughs> and you know uh the paranoia that they're being watched even though they are in this situation but uh the idea that so much is going on in a college dorm and uh there was a cut there and obviously someone will be seen and you know of course you know everyone's walking around with bikinis because that's clearly how people walk around in colleges very uh overtly it's it's a film so and then the shower saying shower on there <laughs> you know it's for the audience yeah you know what kind of movie this is supposed to be um and then you know yep girl masturbating that's this is just all things that you would expect to see in college right um so they had the hand there very tongue-in-cheek, I like. Uh, and then we have the reveal here of the killer. It's kind of creepy looking, and I'm not sure how has gone that unnoticed, especially since you can see what he sees. And our shower scene. Two movies in a row that Hitchcock has used to shower scene. Hitchcock has the most vulnerable place is a shower in your home. So we have a much over-the-top. And then we cut right to Jack 
and the director, so the sound and uh, director, who kind of looks, is trying to play to Palma-ish. And then you have the editor right there. <laughs> and this is what's probably the best part and sets you up for the movie. The movie is, hasn't even shown the credits yet, but this is the cold open. Uh, they're showing you the process of making a movie, especially a low-budget movie. And they play it back, and you see all the sounds go down, like on the mixing board uh, or the effects. So you see, as he goes down with it, each of them disappears. And then we hear the scream again. And like I said before in the trilogy, we were in Dress to Kill watching what was on screen. So say this is, uh, they're behind, they're all the way at the end of the audience here. And they're watching, they're watching their own work and crafting it. Because when you make a movie, you make the movie three times. You make a movie when you write it, you make a movie when you shoot it, and then you make a movie when you edit it. It could be made in innumerable amount of ways. Innumerable? Is that even a word? Um, so they talk about, you know, their horror movies that they worked on. And I love this the shot here. Like, De Palma holds. There's not a lot of cutbacks and forths. You know. Cuts are motivated, uh, as you always got to hear. And De Palma actually had this argument with his uh, sound, of, uh, sound designer on Dress to Kill. So... He remembers having that actual argument. And uh, it's a really good way to start a movie. Um, like, But I really do love the fact that they're sitting in the seats. So this shows you the crew member, shows the audience. Yeah, And then we go to the opening, which I think is extremely effective. Focus on the screen. So we have George Lido, who's the producer, head of... Filmways. Brian De Palma is that breathing that we heard from before. He's the voyeur. John Travolta with the sound. The actual scream that will be used. And then the blowout. Two O's will overlap. And we're going to go through it. It's kind of like a portal. De Palma wastes no time here. Um, going to show you what show you what Jack's life is about. Uh, so, and there's no wasted information. You know, he turns on the TV and this is going to be our plot. This is going to give you all the information you need in uh, regarding the character. Whether or not Jack knows it is different, but we are watching a movie, so anything that is in the film is important. That's kind of the idea. There's no superfluous uh, information that is not driving the f uh, plot forward. Uh, so versus last time, we have the credits overlapping the film. We see the character on the TV uh, briefly for a moment uh, when he talks to John Lithgow later in the movie. Oh, Burke, I should say. And, um, you know, it's him. Uh, so they have their plot here. It's kind of looking at the camera winking almost quite literally looking at the camera like yep we know something you don't and then the split diopter he uses here with the television set to continue giving us information and showing uh jack at work had jack been watching this perhaps he would have been 
a little more knowledgeable of the situation, but this isn't the first time where he walks away from the TV, but it's not really his job to put together everything. It's He's in this world. This information's for us. And we have the side-by-side cuts within the uh, frames, which I always thought was just brilliant. Um, and he's, you know, re-recording uh, all these sounds that he has. And she's setting up the Liberty Day holiday, which is a invented holiday, because um, they think this is around winter. You could see based on the coats and the weather at the end of the movie, or I'm not sure if it's late, like November, December, or maybe it's late fall or early winter. Um, but the fact that you could see two images at the same time is going to be really important uh, in this movie. And then uh, at this dinner is where um, Sally meets uh, the governor. So whether or not you could see her in in any of these shots is would be interesting. But she is not um, seen. There you go. He's hearing the shot. Uh, he, literally hearing the shot. Uh, so... The thing that it's very important showing here is John Travolta, Jack, knows sounds. So when it comes up later that there was a blowout, he was like, yes, but there was a shot before it, and they're arguing with him. So he, uh, it needed to show you that he knows exactly what he is doing just by hearing it, right? That gives you a little glimpse. And now we are in uh, the big set piece of the movie. Everything's going to come back to this scene here. Uh, De Palma has beautiful set pieces where, you know, he knows, he talks a lot about geography. And you'll see it in a, from different angles and different, um, hear it differently in different parts of the conversation as the movie uh, progresses. He is very influenced by the movie Blow Up and the movie The Conversation, uh, which was directed by one of his peers, Francis Ford Coppola. So he was very, very familiar with that. And then um, he plays with... There's another split diopter. Plenty of split diopters in this movie. Um, but also, what would a sound guy look like just recording sounds? It's one of those things you wouldn't think that would be an interesting uh, point for a film, but I think that's just the brilliance of this. It's someone with a past, you know. So he hears the sounds, he's trying to locate it, and then when we locate it, it's kind of that cut, cut, cut. It's a zoom cut almost. We're going back further each time, or we zoom cut in. Uh, very, very deliberate to draw our attention to what he's seeing. And then this is the first time we will hear or know the existence of Burke. We'll hear him playing with his uh, watch strangulation thing, I guess. <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. I can't really think of the term right now. But um, the owl, and the owl is a witness, is the only other witness other than uh, Jack himself to the murder or the assassination attempt or even though it's been 
later said that it wasn't intentionally a kill. It wasn't their intent to kill him. So the owl sees and draws Jack's attention to it. And we don't actually see the shot. We only hear it. We'll see it later, but we are only hearing it. So he never sees it, but you see the smoke up there, and you see the crash, but you don't see the shot happen. So Jack now is dropping everything to run in and save people. And if you look really closely, you could see a Dennis France character right underneath the bridge who is filming it. I, I'm guessing he was at it. The angle he shot it from is odd, but, you know, it's a movie, right? So now you see him running across the bridge. Manny. Manny's his name. I just watched this the other day, and for some reason I forgot everything. Uh, <laughs> I still get caught up in it, so I'm hoping to get better uh, the more commentaries I do, you know, as with anything. Uh, so we see Sally for the first time, and Jack is struggling to open the door, and it's at this point we see Governor McRyan. who did not make it through the accident. So what De Palma is doing here is he's putting, you know, I said this is a trilogy, so this is very Jalo-esque, a character who is kind of working on something, happens to be involved with a uh, death or a murder that really is outside their circumstances. They're either a witness or they're just at the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, in Dress to Kill, Liz, uh, Nancy Allen's character, just happened to be um, doing, a, doing a job uh, in a hotel where they found uh, Angie Dickinson's character slashed in the elevator. It was just bad timing and prevented her from really being more honest with the police. And in this situation, uh, Nancy Allen, again, is playing Sally. Again, playing Sally. She's playing a, um, a person who helps get dirty pictures uh, with Manny, who is Dennis France. And they kind of, she's a blackmailer, pretty much. So they get people in compromising positions. And she's not exactly aware, but that she was involved in this political um, assassination. So she doesn't exactly want to go to the police because of her involvement in it. Um, here, Jack is, uh, I'd say, Brian De Palma uh, to an extent, kind of like Keith Gordon was in Dress to Kill. Jack is a, a... Brian De Palma was a very... Still is, I guess, a very big fan of... Um, not fan, sorry. He's a big student of uh, the JFK assassination and the amount of information and knowledge and, you know, still there's no answer. He's like, there have been volumes, books have been written on it. And still to this day, you know, there is no definitive answer. And whether or not it would be, would anyone even care at this point? I remember hearing him say um, in an interview with Noah Bombach. But here he's struggling to tell what exactly happened. Uh, you know, how do you explain to someone, yeah, I recorded the accident audio. What? What do you mean? Well, I'm recording movies. It's like the whole situation is quite 
Um, <laughs> it's it's an odd place to be, and he is just trying to do the right thing. But then you see later throughout the movie, he has an obsession, and he can't let it go. Um, like in Blow Up, the movie, they keep zooming in on the photo, and it just becomes grainy and just noise after a point. And in the conversation, he keeps listening to the same tape over and over and over again. So uh, they play. They both those movies even play with uh, Alfred Hitchcock's vertigo of this obsession that kind of really drives these characters. If they weren't so obsessive, perhaps the movie wouldn't go in. And it's almost similar to like a fairy tale, just obsession. Uh, but he meets Sally here, and had he not been obsessive, if he actually did like her, that that's that's a fun thing. Is they have a really good chemistry together. Um, a lot of people don't like her voice in this movie. I think her performance is actually pretty good in this movie. She has this very naive innocence about her, where in Dress to Kill, she was more... Hmm, she was a, playing a much different character, you know? And she's uh, insecure because she's a makeup artist, and she doesn't think she looks beautiful, even though uh, they have... They're having like a good moment here, and I think this is where cutting and close-ups really is effective because they're really connecting. Like, look at uh, Jack's eyes, Nancy's eyes. It was like a real moment, and I think it really helps drive the the sadness of the movie forward. Like when you know, especially if you're seeing this a second or third or fourth or fifth time, you kind of see hindsight is twenty twenty. You know. Like, she obviously likes him, and he kind of likes her, but they they stick, uh, they stick with business, you know. So there's romance in this movie, I'd say. More romance in this movie than Dress to Kill or Body Double. This probably has, of the three movies, is the most unique because I think there is a strong... Um, there's a strong chemistry between these two characters, and it has that romantic... Um, has that romance. It's not the best place for a romance, but that's kind of trauma could, you know, bring people together. Um, yeah. This one also of the three movies is the most unique, I would say, because uh, a lot of times the middle movie in the trilogy can be the most unique. You think Empire Strikes Back versus uh, Star Wars or Return of the Jedi or I'm sorry, A New Hope or New, uh, Return of the Jedi both take place on Tatooine and Empire is probably the most removed uh, even the Dark Knight trilogy you know, it's the one movie where Bruce Wayne is not at Wayne Manor so a lot of times you have to get the character further, it's the furthest removed because Body Double and Dress to Kill are both erotic thrillers this is more of a political thriller but still within the same realm of Jalo. and then we're going to we're going to just continue on here. I like to prattle. <laughs> so now they're trying to have a meeting, and he wants him to forget that Sally was in the car for the dignity. And Jack's still not sure exactly what happened, because he know of Governor McRyan, but he didn't know that he was in the car until this police officer told him. So that's why he's... Uh, kind of puts it together it's a he happened to be they even mentioned later uh dennis francis character manny says this is bigger than the zapruder film 
kind of is. It's like a sex scandal on top of an assassination on right before presidential election. So that's why I like the timeline is really interesting. I don't know if this is like January, February, or this may be October, November. Maybe they say it, or we'll see it in uh, one of the newspapers. Tupama well, is very, very deliberate here, and with the with the cutting, because you'll see certain scenes that are just more invisible, so they're not the big show pieces. They're just regular conversation, and sometimes that gets lost with uh, when people see this. They're like, oh, it's just a talk scene. There's no action happening, but this is where the plot, so he doesn't want you really to be drawn to the editing here. He needs to get this uh, information in. But this really sets up the isolation uh, that this character is going to have because the police are, be, he says, everything's being taken care of. So the police now know, to, know that Sally wasn't in there and the press is going to find out Sally wasn't in there. So he's going to be one of the only people, him and Sally are the, at least two people know that she was in there. So they're bonded by that, that they are the one's aware of the truth and no one else is really interested in it. And this kind of frustrates Jack because he, um, we'll find out later, was doing recordings for uh, the King or Keen Commission where he recorded, um, he was helped with internal affairs. So uh, a big plot in police movies often is no one likes the internal affairs because... They're putting, as they say, good cops behind bars. Harvey Dent has that issue a lot in the Dark Knight trilogy, uh, especially with meaning of trust. So we have Zach and, Zach, Sally and Jack here. We see his Jeep for the first time. And I like this two-shot. It's raining. They kind of have to leave the hospital. She's not even, you know, fully able to be discharged on her own. They have to sneak her out. And, you know, Jack feels really bad for her, but also slightly connected to her. And they go to a hotel, he helps her out, and you start seeing his, the obsession begin here. Um, we're about 22 minutes in the movie. And then uh, we will realize that there is uh, more at work here than just the blowout. He believes he heard a gunshot. No one else seems to believe it or verify it, but it will soon be, uh, will soon be crystal clear for us, the viewers, and then we'll see how someone could be made. I, I, I just like how this movie it just unfolds. It's just this is a film for film people, <laughs> and the music too. Pino Donaggio does a beautiful score here. In uh, Dress to Kill, who was a very, like, sexual, scary. Here it's, it's something else, you know. It's, um, it really helps drive the movie forward. 
Not not saying Dress to Kill didn't, but it just really, I don't know. I'm working on it, right? So here he's recreating his, uh, his him on there, and he's trying to see what he heard. He's like doing some recall, uh, almost his own detective work. That's where I was saying a lot about Jalo is the main characters become their own detectives. That's kind of, I guess, what the fiction. And then we see a different angle of that couple before and why she was kind of freaked out. I guess they were having more of an intimate moment. <laughs> we see a guy with a giant stick, which would be a microphone, but maybe it wasn't as known to the populace at this point. So he's recreating his microphone with a pencil just for spatial audio. And we get different angles of that scene. So we're getting his perspective now, which I think is a really cool thing. We saw the first perspective, and now we're getting this perspective. And we're seeing the meter. We're really seeing how sound works and how his mind works. We're working it along with it. And then he hears the sound again, which we have that close-up to the eyes. And we don't see Burke, but we know Burke is there. Burke takes a while to reveal who, he, uh, who Burke is, but... You'll see who the antagonist of the movie is, and they only meet one time. And then we get our owl. And then a very, very, very beautiful shot here. Because it changes the perspective. We didn't know where the camera was before, and now the owl's a lot closer than we thought. That's what I think is really great about this movie. It's like, oh, you thought it was there, but we're showing it. He's close up. Once again, does not see the shot, but he sees the smoke after it because he wasn't looking at the car when it was driving by. He was only listening to it. So he has he can't prove it, but he knows he heard a shot. And he's trying to visualize it because he didn't actually see it. So we're very clear with the images. We never see the shot until we see it on the camera. That's another thing. We're only suspect. You know, we're um, not suspecting. We're... We suspect. So we are with the character here. And then we see this shot, which I thought was beautiful, the split diopter. You see the smoke, and he puts to that, he puts that together. If the tire was shot out, that was where the smoke was coming from. So now he has a recording of an assassination. We later would find out that someone actually took a video recording, not a video recording, a film recording of it. And... We are now introduced to Burke, late at night, and I thought I think this is just very brilliant here too. Um, see the garage closing, so we know it's a. We see a police car. We know this is the police impound, and we learn a lot of information. I didn't really notice this until this is like just last watch. So John Lithgow comes out of the car here. He's hiding in the back seat. He will throw a box which shows magnetic tape eraser. He'll use that later, so he already has everything. He's got his tire. He has everything to cover his tracks right in this trunk here. And um, this kind of over-the-top moment where he throws the tire, but he's by himself, so he gets to play. He's trying to have some fun. But this is our first glimpse that uh -oh, Jack... It's not going to be an easy time for Jack. And then we see the tire. So he changed it. You know, that's a bullet hole in there. He finds the entry point. And I'm not sure how 
he found maybe just found a tire that blew out, but he switches the tire, puts on his gloves. It's very mechanical. This part always makes me think of the Dario Argento movies of uh, the Giallo because they're also wearing leather gloves, deep red. Showed you all the tools in this very slow motion tracking shot, all the tools that the character will use. And then we have a really cool, you know, we're tracking out here. And it fades away because, all right, well, we know that part of the story was no longer going to be believable. So Jax has a lot of work cut out for him. But the other thing is we are aware we're watching a movie because movies exist inside this movie. You know? uh, so this is a step further. Like um, That's what De Palma showed us really at the beginning of the movie. This is going to be very crafted very crafted uh, but he's still going to be able to take us along for this really fun journey and this personal journey I really always liked the wallpaper there too it was very like I guess 70s at this this would be 70s because this is 1981 so 80s weren't 80s yet I always like to say that the 80s weren't really 80s up until like maybe 82 83 even though the 80s started about 79 musically I feel like the 80s didn't really start until uh, Reagan came in. So, you know, 1980s are dressed to kill, and then 1981, this is a blowout. Um, but still not sure. And the, as I said, the proscenium before, we're, we're getting to see, like, life from a sound designer's point of view, right? So De Palma's... In a lot of his work, he likes to show the process of filmmaking and showing you how movies are made because he believes you are you should always be aware you're watching a movie. It is escapism. It's entertainment. Um, like, he believes in the verisimilitude of it, but it's just like you are watching a movie, you know. So he likes thrillers. He's very influenced by Hitchcock. Um, that's why he's, like, very assertive with his stylistics because you wouldn't usually see split tiopeters in movies but it's drawing attention to the fact you're watching a movie but at the same time visually it's putting you in the position of the character and that's what i like it's that uh cinematic narrative cinematic storytelling he's really big on he claims claims he says he's continuing on hitchcock traditions and tarantino said himself had hitchcock lived through the not new hollywood period or the 80s the seven, later 70s, 80s, probably would have made a lot different movies. Uh, like Frenzy was a very late Hitchcock movie. Very, very, very different. Um, it was one, it was a very graphic one. Uh, not one of his, not one of the ones that people usually talk about as much, but it, it's, it's a very different one. And it's, it has a lot of odd moments, especially, which I think certain elements are replicated here especially having humor when we're following, like, the killer. Uh, that was specifically, I was thinking in the potato truck. Uh, so now we go back to Jack's workplace. And this is just great. We're in Philadelphia. Um, this reminds me of, like, 42nd Street, even though we're in Philadelphia. You see the adult bookstore. And then, you know, the very small independent picture company, which they had a lot of eagles on a different... Uh, small picture film, sm small companies. And then our director coming here, drawing his attention literally to the TV. <laughs> kind of clever to 
that there's a now a new there's a new element. We're here 31 minutes, so this is our plot point. There is now a new added element to our story that there's uh, movies of it. And then we get to see Manny. So Dennis France here again, <laughs> playing still a sleazy character, but he's not a police officer this time. He's more of a, <laughs> he's a blackmailer, a blackmailer photographer. And um, I like how he always just talk. He kind of always talks exactly the same, but his different roles. Uh, he was really good in Dress to Kill. I mean, I think he played a believable New York police officer and here he in his place. <laughs> Such a sleazy guy. <laughs> Like, he, he's just, uh, it's the way he talks, he's just, he's a lot of fun. I really, I like his work with um, with uh, De Palma. And then he'd be in Psycho 2 playing a sleazy hotel owner, and then he goes face-to-face -face with Norman Bates. In a very, I feel like it's almost this character, maybe, you know. And then The Boogeyman, that's a real poster. And, uh, yeah... A lot of the movies, uh, like, oof, look at look at the Doritos bag. That's one of my favorite aspects of movies. We got Boogeyman. All those are real movies, by the way. The Boogeyman, Food for the Gods, and Squirm. I've seen those. After this movie, I actually started looking for these movies, just curious um, how they are. And a lot of them are bad. Without Warning, Fantasex. Um, the Criterion Collection Blu-ray or uh, 4K has... A reproduction of this magazine which is really really cool the whole article and it has the movie posters so if you saw he went into animation before and he's basically thinking all right I'm gonna put this together as a movie because he knows how movies work and can 24 frames per second he's trying to figure out if he can do it when he can do it so Manny's also selling his movies to magazines and they're reproducing the film as a uh, print he's not selling it to tv or maybe he's waiting on it he's having maybe a slow rollout style kind of like a movie you know give us more information uh but we see this obsessive nature here jack is supposed to be working the director tells him numerous times the director also mentioned this but caused his curiosity to peak but uh, Jack's not being a really good employee. <laughs> He's caught up in a murder mystery, and it's not his job. He could just leave this alone and walk away at any point. It's not like he's being indicted for murder. It's his curiosity. Just to kill Liz, Nancy Allen's character, is given a time limit to try to help figure out this crime. So that's kind of that time pressure motivation there. Here, uh, this is more just obsession. Um, like in Vertigo as well, after um, Scotty, after Tim Novak's character assumedly is dead and he sees someone like her and he tries to recreate her, that's all in his own time. And it's his obsession. He needs to know the answers is why. And they say it's a very personal film for Hitchcock. And Vertigo, I think, is probably the most influential film to De Palma. He references it a lot. Very big fan of it. And once again... Zooming in and zooming out, similar to Peter uh, in Dress to Kill, John Travolta knows about films and is a very technical kind of guy. So between um, Travolta is 
to Palma, maybe like on a personal level, like his curiosity, how his mind works and how he would put together a story similar to Peter and um, <laughs> Empire of the Ants. Oh, that's a movie. And just everything in the scene, how it's shot, his walking through the exit where the camera's placed, screams. Keep looking. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, like in Dress to Kill, um, our De Palma-esque character drops off film and waits for it to be processed. That is a time element because now we have instant photography. So that's kind of one of the things I... You know, he's depositing, it's like film deposit. He has to wait for them to develop it. And that's a job that we don't see as much. I don't think there's uh, that many developing places, if any. But they were a lot more frequent, obviously, in the time period. You used to see those booths in the supermarket or shopping center. They would just have developed. So I, I like that comparison. This is one of the things Dressed to Kill and Blowout have in common. And he's talking to Sally. And then I like this zoom back and you have the two characters on two different sides and they meet and I think this is where they kind of their relationship really starts to develop a little bit more excuse me because before it was just oh you saved my life and um, great two shot or not two shot I'm sorry great shot yeah, De Palma would hit me if I said that so there was no cutting here we are on this one shot. There's the cut. But before, you know, to get all the those um you feel the emotions, I feel. It's I I'm really I harp a lot about cuts. But f as an actor, you see cuz when you're acting in these scenes, you don't know the cuts or you don't know how they're going to cut it. You want to give them options and then they can cut around it. But when they don't cut, you feel you get to as a viewer, you feel more involved. Like even right here, we're sitting at the bar with these two characters and we're eventually going to punch in closer, but there's also a full bar. We know it's a bar and these are just two people. There's nothing special about them. No one's looking at them. They happen to know something. But when you have these elongated moments without cuts in a conversation specifically, you get to see, I guess... You get to see the actors really get to work and you know it's a uh, it's great to always see good performances you know when you see someone like so many cuts it drives you nuts there's something about it and here with um the way she's being shot she's got the mirror we got that you know one of those things that's it could be said is she's not looking in the mirror here right both characters are dealing with their own issues and we'll learn a lot a little bit more about both of them and here Jack is clearly trying to stall Sally from going on a train, but he's kind of flirting with her and trying to get her to talk. He's not being really honest, but she's also not being fully honest either. There's a mirror there, and she's more vulnerable, I guess, uh, in the shot. If I'm wrong about these things, I'm wrong, but these are just little things I wanted to point out. Rolling Rock. And she has a rabbit's foot around her at all times. It's supposed to be luck. Which, uh, it's, it's something that I always... I forget when mentioning a movie, but it is a very specific character thing. She has a lucky rabbit's foot. And he tells her about his history. 
he's like, oh, real science whiz. Not too dissimilar to Peter. So this is De Palma writing himself. So De Palma is multiple characters in this movie. It was the director, and now this is him. Now they're getting more intimate. You notice the shot changes. It's no longer that mirror shot. It is very close. And he's kind of not really feeling it because he doesn't want to talk about the incident. And this is the vertigo-like situation. We're not seeing it follow in real time, but it's more of a flashback. Because he's like, uh, he'd rather talk about movies, and this was highly traumatic for him. And you're like, well, why Why is a guy a smart guy? As they said, why is a smart guy doing that shit before? He's just kind of playing by the numbers. Jack is a very intelligent guy here. He's probably capable of a lot more, but he is just doing sound effects for horror movies, which doesn't seem to be where he wants to be, but he's comfortable. And she's not where she wants to be, but she's trying to be comfortable. So now we're in a flashback, which has this more dream, dreamy likes. Um, uh, it has something that differentiates it. It just visually looks a lot different. It has like this little haze over it, which uh, Vilmos. Also, Ben Franklin. The amount of Ben Franklin... And Philadelphia, Ben Franklin and Philadelphia are like, obviously, he's a very central figure. But the amount of different uh, drawings or artistic um, renderings of him in advertising is really cool. Uh, when I was younger, there was a hotel not too far from Philly. Oh, the split diopter with the cassette player. I love it. Uh, it was called Franklin Mills. It's now just a Simon Mall, but it was very... Ben Franklin themed um, around Philly. I, I remember I used to go there a few times and it had this really cool, um, they focused on the kite and the key and the umbrella and the electricity thing, which, you know, Philadelphia is very important to this movie. It's not New York City. It's not Los Angeles. It is its own city. And Generally, people don't think of movies being made in Philadelphia, but it was on the East Coast. It's a port city. There's no reason that movies couldn't be made or edited there. <clears throat> it just showed you that, you know, cities, cities each has its own feeling. And here we see Freddy starting to sweat, and we have the mob boss on the right oh, that we're looking at. So it'll be to the left of Freddy, and then the police officer to Freddy's right. And we see the spinning tape. Like, this is a very complicated, I mean, by 1980s standards, this looks like a complicated rig that he has set up. And um, attaching it directly to his skin has its consequences. I Usually I thought they would put it on a shirt or a certain part, but, you know, it looked kind of, what's the word? Um... It didn't look like a fully developed like piece of tech that he's placing on his skin. So, like maybe if I had a covering or something, it could have prevented, uh, could have done the sweat. And now you know he says, "I gotta go to this gas station." It's a very interesting location, but I was like, okay. And then uh, he follows him in, slowly ripping it off. Didn't think he'd be followed in, and 
the situation where he can't do anything. He wants to do something, but he's being ordered not to, and he feels helpless, and he's being told not to. So this time he's being told not to. He's like, I don't care. I'm going to do it. I'm going to save the day. Also, how quickly he strung the guy up, as you're going to be seen, is not realistic, but it is a movie, and we need to move it forward. Also, it's the only time you see Jack, like, dressed in a suit, you know. So he hangs him by the wire. Tilt up, tilt down. Yeah, Travolta has a long trench coat. I wonder if it's this scene which made uh, Tarantino want to cast him in uh, Pulp Fiction. Because he wears a suit. Like, it, the look works well for him in this, but it's... Now you see him a little more vulnerable. And then we go back to that mirror shot. So she's still hiding something, too, which he doesn't know yet. We will find out. But he was very open, and... She doesn't tell him. She holds back from him, and he holds back from her. So dishonesty, or not being completely honest with each other, is holding both characters back. But his vulnerability is keeping her there, even though she wants to leave. And the whole reason she was leaving is because she's being paid to leave, which we will find out later. And then he's like, we can go away together. So, you know, he kind of, whether, I think he wants to, but at the same time, he it's, Jack is kind of manipulative, like, here. He's being manipulative. He's, you know, using his looks and his charms to make her do some actually really dangerous stuff and because he can't do it by himself uh, so now we have Burke for the second time here and then we'll see start seeing how his plan starts unfolding so he has a picture of Sally in a compromising position one of the photos that Manny has because he knows even though Jack does not so we see and begin stalking. And we see a lot of really good uh, Philadelphia locations, like the market. We'll see some more uh, locations in Body Double. Both movie, the great things about trilogy is there's combinations, you know. One and two have stuff in common. Two and three have stuff in common. One and three have stuff in common. And then there's uniquities. That's a word I like to use uh, for the three. So we're following in this tracking shot in a different type of way from before. Uh, it's not like that sleazy horror movies. Oh, split diopter every time. So he grabs a nice pick out of nowhere, right? Just picks it up. It's not his stolen. And then we see him right there. Bus. 
And then he uses his wire quickly, so fast. And then they fall down. One of the scariest things about this movie is how effective Burke is just in public places. Uh, he has, he he's just very confident. It's like he did a bus stop in the middle of all these people and uh, did he scope the area out? He's just like, Jack is really outnumbered here. Um, but Burke also has more information than Jack does. So we, this is the reveal that it is not, in fact, Sally. And, you know, it's kind of odd. We're like, okay, why is this guy killing us? And then he gets the idea of someone obsessed with the Liberty Bell. And John Lithgow would go on later to be in Dexter as the Trinity Killer in season four. So John Travolta, John Travolta, John Lithgow is a very, uh, very capable actor. A lot of comedians or funny actors play drama very well, which people don't know. And this is where he's doing a Liberty Bell. And this shot, so while this is happening, we just move all the way over here. And we see Sally. That's the crazy thing. It's the same city. This is all happening at the same time. Time is really important. Um, and now we're going to get a little bit more about Sally way the audience uh burke knows this everyone else knows this but jack jack is the last to know but he is the most curious and this very duara shot here with manny up stop and then he puts on this hat he's trying to look cool he's got like these stains all over his shirt and i just love this room and he turns on the tv and Fun fact, this is actually Brian De Palma's first movie on the TV, Murder a la Mod, very experimental film. Uh, if you do have the Criterion Blu-ray or 4K, it is available. I think it's on just the Blu-ray disc, but we have a little tracking shot of what we're dealing with here in terms of Manny. Just look at how he holds himself. So there's the movie Murder a la Mod. reason he used it is because he had the rights to it. It was his film, so why not? And it's a nice little, look at that, shows you the camera equipment. Just shows you, it doesn't need to tell you, you know. But he's also drawing your attention with his uh, camera movements. And then we're going to find out Sally's involvement here. So we're almost an hour into the movie now, but we're going to find out at our midpoint. Red walls, just the red walls. And here there's no, is a, like we are still holding on this shot, which I really like. But you really see their relationship. 
It's a different one, right? And then this music, the so now he's got the film and you're going to see him quite literally make a movie syncing up sound to moving images which this was made in the time where it was still done so looking back on it you're like wow this is how movies were made it's kind of excuse me it's a nice thing that it just happens to be part of the narrative so it's not like a documentary it's it's a it's a entertaining piece of fiction while showing it's entertaining you while educating you which is always the best part and um now this would all be done digitally it could be done but it would just be a, uh, someone in front of their computer might not be nearly as interesting not saying it couldn't be done probably could but i feel there would just be a lot more going on. And, you know, one of the strongest points of the movie is just him putting together the scene, seeing it from a different view. So this is what's fun. Directors get to see it from a different point of view and also see the different... We're seeing the accident, that one set piece. So we've kept coming back to there. That's that almost MacGuffin that's keeping us all. What the hell happened? That blowout, right? And now he's marking the uh, tape. He's got to find the beginning and the end or the splash. So he needs to sync. He needs to find one sound that's specific enough that he could sync it to. If you've ever done... Uh, even if you're familiar with um, non-linear editing uh, on a computer, if it's out of sync, you kind of just kind of keep playing around with it. It is, it's fun to an extent, but it's a bit challenging. It's satisfying when you get it. So he's trying to sync up the water sound precisely. He needs to make sure because he wants to figure out the gunshot. This is also reproduced photos on a magazine animated so that's why the picture quality looks so uh, cruddy but just trying to figure out that shot so i see some smoke and this is also a moviola One of the greatest things about technology, though, is movies like this look gorgeous now because they restored it to the amount, or like they scan it digitally, and they can remove a lot of physical artifacts. And we have Benjamin Franklin again. De Palma knew to find all these things of uh, Franklin, especially this apartment. And this shot here, just showing you, he is being watched. Because Burke, who was just one step ahead of him. One thing I don't think he can do is get into his apartment. He can get into the building, but he never gets into the apartment itself. So now he's going to bring his report to the police and what he finds. But the other thing is, I think Burke did get into the apartment because he does wipe the tape clean. 
because all of his tapes are white blank at a certain point. He just starts with his hotel room, or he starts with his room, and then he gets there, as we saw in the back of Burke's trunk before. So Burke is, the more Jack is fighting it, the more people aren't believing him. I'm trying to see in that calendar there. I can't really tell. And the other thing is of being uh, being on the wrong side of a conspiracy, even though you might be right, the uh, the struggle this character is having. And also no one cares. That's the other thing. He's just in a world where most people rather not know. And he's really struggling to find that truth. And then uh, his past is coming back to him. Also, through the three different films... All the characters have an antagonistic relationship with the police. The police uh, in Hitchcock movies are often sense of fear because Hitchcock was placed, uh, I think he stole something, and they put him in jail for a few seconds or a few minutes as a kid, and the, the, um, the event was kind of traumatizing for him. So police became a very impactful character. Even in Psycho, you could see with the sunglasses and the ominous tone, uh, and even a lot of Jalos, the police are not always the enemy in this, but they are anti—they are not—they are antagonizing, not antagonist. They're antagonizing the main character, uh, Dennis Francis' character, uh, was pretty much driving Liz's character in *Dress to Kill* to move forward, but also the fear of her going to jail, even though she was never really in danger. And then this character not listening to it with him or watching it with him or take him seriously immediately but also really skeptical he doesn't want to believe him and then uh, body double will finally find uh, that last uh, detective who really doesn't like uh, Jake and now we have Burke for the first time communicating who he is, and his prepar his preparedness. He's got this uh, phone helmet on. So he knows he is very, very capable. He knows audio, he knows uh, phones, and we keep seeing these Liberty Day posters. This is a made-up holiday, but it's a nice thing that it, it has a realness. This Liberty Day parade is going to happen. Like... It is a very big deal. It's the celebration of the Liberty Bell being rung. Now we find out where Manny works as a photographer. And this is the revelation that, uh, this is our midpoint actually, is Jack finding out that Sally isn't exactly who she says she is. And kind of puts a bit of a tiff between them. But also the, the way the police, this police officer's talking to Jack. Jack's doing his own investigation. And, you know, that music tone. and It's very disappointed. He seems disappointed. That's the thing, because he's not happy. And then here we have the man from the TV. <laughs> And you find out why he was so confident in that interview, because they knew this was going to happen, but 
all from the beginning. This was all orchestrated much even before the move, as soon as those credits start. Our cold open was him trying to find a scream, and all this has happened from him trying to find a scream. And Burke here gives us exposition, but he's telling... He's telling them all the loose ends and how he's doing it, especially um, doing a series of killings. So he's killing like-minded uh, women to cover it. And the way it's covered on the television, it's it's all like there's just something everyone's missing. But all the facts are right there in front of everyone, and we're the audience member. Like, but come on, why can't we see? Uh, back to the scream. We're here in an hour. We still need to remember this. <laughs> this is the uh, ongoing issue for this director. And then just the idea of someone dubbing a scream is as ridiculous as it sounds. They're trying to have a genuine scream of terror in a, uh, in a booth. So it is kind of poking fun at the ridiculousness of filmmaking and acting. This is what you have to go through. Um, all, all sounds in a film are created artificially. So, you know, just taking a step back, we are with the, uh, this this viewing room, I think, is is probably like where we were in Dress to Kill, I would say. We would probably be sitting there. And then at the last point, we will be one of the actors. I, um, but I, I just love Red. Red and cinema usually go together for me. And then we're going to get our best shot, maybe one of the best shots. As you can see, Jack is trying to do it, go back to doing his job because he hasn't been doing it. Remember, he was supposed to get new wind and a scream, and he's not being very helpful. He's supposed to be there with him. And now we're doing this 360 shot, which is replicating a spinning reel. And Jack is going to realize all of his tapes were, were wiped. So Burke, and Burke even said it before, I wiped all of his tapes. Always one step ahead. And Jack is very capable, and he knows what's going on, but unfortunately he can't explain it to anyone. And uh, when the assistant or secretary comes in, she tells him that there was uh, someone in here, and he just came freely in. Also, there's a bed there, so you know that Jack probably works, is married to his job. Um, he's a workaholic it's obvious based on his emphasis on uh, something that's that's just his life. But his failure to do anything, not do anything, but his failure to, you know, kind of take stock of the situation. It's his obsession that's making everything so much worse, even though no matter what he does, he's just making things worse. And he has no allies. His past uh, is, in his mind, prohibiting him. And he feels really isolated. So now his whole investigation has come to a crashing halt. 
finds out that his tape was wiped. Now he just seems completely crazy. The police don't believe him. And his whole thing is up. He's like, and that's what they want you to believe. They. Who is they? And for conspiracy theories, police probably have to deal with so much more. This shot is just great. The Criterion DVD or Blu-ray 4K, whatever, has him just, there's a modified poster of this. And it's that obsessiveness. He has all these things running and he's just, he's just over it. <laughs> he just leaves it all running. But, of course, movie's not done yet. meet Frank Donahue, who is one of the sensationalists or one of the TV personalities. And what the way he talks here sounds so... Well, he is an influencer, but if you were to watch this today, it could be a TikToker or a, a person who has their own news type thing, you know. Um, almost... Not quite sensationalist, but slightly sensationalism. But it is an out here. He's just going to go to the media versus go to the police and hopefully they'll figure it out because I think he is afraid of just being silenced and a loose end. Like in his mind, but he keeps digging and digging and he's not even comfortable. He's not comfortable in his own space anymore, right? And the fact they come into this room, I really, really do. Uh, I like it. We're going. We're here. With the media, right? And he's telling him his side. And Jack's in that seat. And he's been in that seat. He'll be in that seat again. And Jack... Jack knows how the media would see him, especially just with the tape. He really wants the video proof. He doesn't want to just come off. He wants to be 100% sure that he's going to be believed. And, um... Like I was saying before with editing here, look, look at the body language, look at the acting. If you were cutting back and forth, this would be lost, right? You see it in the same shot. He is really trying to convince Jack... You know, that's that's the effectiveness of play, where to place the camera sometimes. Are we going to just do shot, reverse shot, shot, reverse shot? You've got to vary it up. And there is there is a language and a, a grammar to it. Also, Jack has a really nice apartment. Like, really, really nice. <laughs> and this shot, oof. Always, always with these tracking shots. He did this one in Scarface. But, um... So he shows her his little footage. Because he makes, he does make copies of it, but he still has an original. But he wants the original film because he thinks it can be... People will think it's doctored. Also, that little table there with the domino and the chess. Really nice. So this is Sally's uh, apartment, or I believe she's staying with a friend. 
not sure which one it is. But also our perspective, like look where we're at. Body language, the, like, when you really get to look at it from these angles, you get to feel like you're a, you know, you're a viewer, but you're also seeing something, storytelling. And she gets nervous, she's smoking. I thought it was, they did the same thing in Dress to Kill Liz did to Nancy Allen in two movies. When she's almost revealed, she pulls out a cigarette and starts smoking. It's a nervous habit. It's like, oh, I've been caught. And this is where Jack's telling her about his obsession. And the cut was motivated there. She got up. <laughs> so, you know, he's really trying to convince her to get the, the film. And they could just disappear at any point, and honestly, no one would really care. But his desire to know the truth. But he also doesn't want to look over his shoulder for the rest of his life. You know, like He likes his life, even though he doesn't seem to like his job. And she doesn't like her job. They're both primed to relocate, and that's what she's kind of pushing him to do. Because she does actually... You could tell that she does like him, and he does like her, but he's more obsessed with solving this crime. The crime situation, he kind of wants to be validated in that sense. He wants to be validated and vindicated. But it's not really going to happen. <laughs> Similar to obsession, it's just the whole situation, it happened and there's nothing he can do about it, but he really wants to be right. And now she tells him about the governor and how the governor wasn't, you know, it, it's, it's an onion. We peel more back and the governor was seducing her, or not seducing her, but as she says, very hot to show him. So it's a it's a very ugly situation. There's a lot of different parties involved. There was the governor's family, the governor's friend. And if it just goes as an accident, no one has to get hurt emotionally. And Jack really doesn't care about that. He said someone was murdered and people have the right to know. He doesn't like cover-ups, kind of like the JFK uh, conspiracy. He just wants, to, he's just curious why no one knows. And a little crazed. It's uh, Obsession is not new for De Palma, similar to Vertigo. Uh, not Vertigo, Obsession, the movie Obsession, with Cliff Robertson and being obsessed with the past. And Jack is really trying to fix his mistakes. That's what he really wants to do here. He's, he's obsessed because it was his equipment that got Freddy killed. It was his wrongdoing. Like, if he made it better... Perhaps, but also that was a risk of the job that Freddie was doing. Undercover uh, police work is not has a lot of risks, uh, but he's you know lots of Ben Franklin. Oh. Everyone has Jim Bean in their house. It seems like, <laughs> but 
Both Manny and Jack have the same bottle. Same bottle, see? <laughs> Not sure if that was intentional or that's just had a happenstance, but if we know anything about films, it's intentional. And now uh, we we get more information now that Sally realizes she's being played. She's very sweet and naive in this movie. Um, Liz, Liz and Sally are two different characters, both played by Nancy Allen very wonderfully. Um, I've heard comments about her voice. A lot of people can't stand her voice in this movie. Uh, people I've talked to personally. Uh, I haven't really read anything about that, but... The stains on the shirt, but she um, she's a lot more vulnerable and eager to please in this movie than she was in the last one. Uh, that one, she was kind of just she was more uh, forceful, and this time she just much more naive, much more corruptible, very much more empathic too. You could see how she's really influenced by other people. She's like struggling for herself. And she, you know, is not very proud of what she does. She assumes, you know, the men who are reaching into the cookie jar deserve it. So she didn't have to do anything sexual with them. She's not a prostitute. That is a very big line she doesn't want to cross. But at the same time, she's playing very coy about what she's doing. And she's not pleased with what she's doing. And then... Um, The idea was that they were supposed to be pulled out of the water. And now that they're all in, implicated in a murder, even though it wasn't intended to be a murder, it's scaring everybody. And she wants to come clean because her conscience is driving her. This, this movie has some religious elements in it. Um, John Travolta said Jesus Christ both times. Uh, when on the bridge, there's also a picture of Jesus on the wall there. Uh, and the the police officer had a picture of the Pope. And when Manny, in a second, gets hit over the head, he's going to be in a Christ-like pose. Also, the fact that he's just uh, urinating with the door open, it's just not unexpected from this character. So based on how he's living, you have... You're not supposed to like this guy, not feel bad for this guy. Because he's just really sleazy. <laughs> and the shot. Oh, you wanna go to jail? The red walls. Just something ominous. It feels like something ominous is gonna happen. It doesn't feel really safe. It feels heated. Notice there's not too many cuts here. He's sticking with them. And then if there's a cut, it's on movement. So you're, the idea is you're not supposed to notice. But um, guilt, uh, De Palma was raised Catholic. So he's very into that. Uh, one of the movies I remember with guilt is Scarlet Street, where Edward G. Robinson actually, uh, it's a film noir. And spoiler, at the end of the movie, does get away with the murder, but he can't convince anyone that he did it 
and that's haunting him. He's haunted by the fact that he got away with it, that guilt complex, you know. And now here he's trying to take advantage of um, Sally. Sally wanted to try to convince Manny to give her the film so they could do the right thing, and she's really disappointed in him. Similar to how Jack was disappointed in Sally. She doesn't, and now he's looks like he's taking advantage of her, but she does not. Now we have this shot over the head. But she does stand up for herself here with the bottle. And she hits a breaking point. So when she flips him over, look at his hands and look at his feet. Kind of just... Yeah. Very Christ-like. And it's an over the... Very good shot, but also you get all the action in the shot without having to cut. Now they're going to watch the film. Bruce Springsteen, uh, obviously Nancy's a fan, and you see the shot now in color. <laughs> that was one of the fun things. I was like, oh, Nancy likes, not Nancy, Sally likes Bruce Springsteen. I think she had like a shirt or a jacket. And then this line, can I make you something to eat? And he's like, sure. How about some cornflakes? <laughs> I, I, I thought that that's always humorous to me. And the funny thing is we, after all that, we only see it one time. We see the color footage one time. So that's, that's pretty much it for the movie of seeing that, the, the scene. Now it's all about getting the film to Donahue. We got it. But of course, it's a movie. Nothing could be that easy, right? And we have Burke here imitating a, uh, imitating a guilt-ridden serial killer. Uh, so he's trying to make it seem like there's one on the loose. And he will... Uh, kill some more so basically no one would suspect that Sally was part of a conspiracy she was part of a series of killings so the way that De Palma came up with all these things all these practical ways that someone could be like proved wrong was like well there was a blowout well the guy changed the tire well you know and then this shot the perspective is of someone he is being watched even though we don't see it, but the zoom out, he is being watched, right? And this is De Palma showing us that he's being recorded. Everything's being recorded. The phone booth, of course he, he has access. He's got the phone helmet. Burke, clearly, this isn't for Burke's first rodeo, and, like, Burke... Burke, professional hitman, who knows? So he listens to all the conversations, he messes with the phone lines, and he controls it. He also establishes in that line that she has no idea what Frank Donahue looks like. No idea, so... 
also we get a nice split screen here phone split screens i always thought they use those i think if i was to see in just general movies phone split screens i'd see the most and they do work because you don't want to keep cutting back and forth you got to see both of them kind of in their own space oh yes that phone all important character here so they talk about the mcryan tragedy and then they go right to the next thing bizarre sex killing which is part of the last story once again he gets up and misses it You're not supposed to know that also the tv looks not like a normal tv Yeah, we have that. Burke now cutting off communication. And this also is a product of its time. Without the phone, there was literally no other way of communicating with someone. It is quickly anyway. There was no video calling. Not focused on the TV, it's focused on the phone. Even though it's all connected. You see the Springsteen shirt, Springsteen calendar. And the other thing which tips Jack off is she doesn't he doesn't know how Donahue would have gotten Sally's number, so he does figure that out. But he makes the mistake of trying to wire her again. So the fact that he contacts her, chips him off that there's something wrong. Doesn't know how he got her number. And he didn't even mention her name. So he's very confused here. This is where his paranoia is. He is correct. He is very intelligent. But <laughs> Now the phone is magically fixed because it was never broken. It was just... Mm-hmm. See? Create that doubt with all the other characters. And if he went with her If he went with her, then he would realize that Burke wouldn't reveal himself. Also, look at these speakers. There's a lot of speakers, a lot of equipment. Yeah, paranoid. There's speakers everywhere, right? This apartment, though. But Jack is, um... Jack is trying to... He's rushing it here, too. That's the other thing. He's afraid if he could just wait and actually meet with Donahue, he'd have everything he needs, but he wants to figure out who's trying behind this. Uh, so he jumps the gun here. And then we have a lot of Liberty Day things. You can see it in the all the way in the back. Uh, we can't see it now, but it's in the magazine. It's over there in that little stand. 
The other thing I think is interesting if to Palma's work, he also goes for real world. Not everyone. He goes with characters that are prostitutes, Navy. It's like people getting caught not doing what they're doing, but it's, he paints a very gray world. Um, but he's very influenced by noir, and he's not saying all people are like this, but these people help drive stories forward. Uh, you know, especially in, like, Jalos. The one thing is this movie has slasher elements, but, it, you know, he, see, he's a slasher, but it's not like <laughs> it's a slasher film. They were making a slasher film in the early beginning, but he's just uh, he's just doing this <laughs> to cover his tracks. Also, the way they do uh, this, uh, the station here is beautiful. It still looks like this uh, if you ever go uh, to the Philadelphia train station. I guess it's Penn Station. or Penn... There's too many Penn Stations. There's like three or four, I think. But even the girl in the background there with the Liberty Day uh, thing, it, it's everywhere. It's its supposed to always be in your mind, and it's details like that that really enhance it. Um, so we have four phone booths here. We will also have another little row of four phone booths in Body Double. It's one thing that this has more in common uh, with Body Double uh, than Dress to Kill uh, when Jake is uh, following Gloria around. And this this right here is what made me decide this is my favorite movie over Blade Runner. Not the act of what's happening is this camera move. It just goes. <laughs> Let's go's response. <laughs> Back to this. And he's, you know, I like how he has to pick up the phone. And just, yep, that happens. And he's just like, all right. He's already plotting, but a simple camera movement panning back and forth, and at this point in the movie. <laughs> that line, too, he blew it. <laughs> Very clever. But, uh, like I was saying before, Lithgow's character is so horrifying is that he's just doing this just right in plain sight. This is a public place, uh, a train station, and wasn't there in the 1980s. Probably a different world, definitely was. Uh, but offering her $50 clearly got her attention. Uh, but the other young woman he strangled was like right in front of a bus stop in the bus market or not a bus a bus stop at a right after a fish market and here you see he's not even in there anymore it's so subtle it's a nice tracking shot but he's gonna kill her in a bathroom at a train station and then um yeah just focusing on how dedicated burke is to his job which was to cover his tracks and his Liberty Bell pin. And is him is a sociopath or just very capable. Shows his capability as an actor, be charming, being scary, just everything.
and again, a bathroom is a very vulnerable place, uh, similar to showers. It, I mean, showers tend to be in bathrooms, but public restrooms, like getting that fear of being in public. That's I think that's what makes John Lithgow uh, Burke the scariest, one of the scariest characters. Because um, in uh, Dress to Kill is an elevator, which is very confined. There's no no escape, and here a bathroom stall, like in a train station probably during a not not during a peak moment it could be you know a long time before anybody even finds her especially during the day of the liberty the day parade people probably you know but the suspense here because you know it's going to happen uh De Palma's very good with suspense if he wants to just do it he would have done it but There's a poster with the feet and the toilet paper on there, and it says blowout. And I remember someone commenting, he's like, well, what kind of picture is that blowout? You're thinking you're going to the bathroom, especially that poster. It's that the horrifying thing is you hear the noise right there, and you're just like, wow, this is one. It's like happening in the bathroom in a very public place, and no one is the wiser, you know. So now... Uh, And the cars, it's 1970s, even though you get the minibus, different time, like, uh, hear that line there? That would be it. She, she gives Jack one last chance to like they could even just go on the train together here if they walked in together Burke probably would have kept his distance maybe would have followed them or maybe wouldn't have um but he's stubborn and And he gives us one more moment, and they have a kiss. And the part that makes us the most heartbreaking is the fact that she really, really, really wants to like make him happy and help him with this. She couldn't care less, because at this point, you know, he's genuine person oh the blood on the shoes and you know he's this above angle but he also saw her get out of the car so he knows Jack is around like I said Burke's always one step ahead and that shot oh it's just beautiful just some real planning And then her talking about their plans and all that. And, you know, it's... Whether or not Burke knows he's being recorded is something I always didn't know. I 
Or maybe he does know. Okay, yeah. He doesn't really let on, but because he heard the recording. But he quickly tries to separate her. He's just going to kill her in the train station. Because he's that effective. He doesn't wait. He just strikes. He strikes as soon as he can. He does not. Doesn't. From what it seems, he doesn't enjoy it. It's more part of his job. Uh, like a lot of the slashers and slasher movies, it's like a psychological thing, but it's just something. He's like, this needs to be done. But he did smile when he uh, was strangling the woman in the bathroom. So I think he does get some enjoyment out of it. And now he doesn't know where she is, so he's going to just try to assume. But the subway. And uh, this, with Dress to Kill, has another subways. Uh, two very, very different subways, though. But the danger of the subways, and she even mentions it in New York. <laughs> so it's it's like a subtle callback, but not really a callback to Dress to Kill. It's just New York at the time, subways were very different, especially with, um, I believe, the Guardian Angels around this time but subways were very scary and Apollo itself said it's probably one of the scariest places um, it's very confined and the lights are going on and off it's very cinematic too Philadelphia subway is much 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 different as you can see like the the underneath part but the actual trains themselves are much different And she's so naive here, she doesn't really see what's going on. She's just trusting everyone to tell her the truth. Uh, she has this eagerness to please. And and then here we catch Burke not being totally prepared. He's usually, so far, two out of three times, he's been super effective or But judging by his like watch thing, maybe I, I misspoke before. He maybe does enjoy it. The sh he enjoys strangling, I think maybe. And then, and uh, how cl oh more Liberty Bill stick like they are everywhere. That is a lot of detail. Especially in a public place. This movie, uh, the budget got a lot higher after John Travolta signed up for it. Originally, it was much smaller. This is after Dress to Kill. Uh, George Lido was the head of Filmways. And originally the ending wasn't popular. But since Brian De Palma and George had that relationship and he just came off Dress to Kill, he was kind of given free reign here. Um, so now he's going to full panic mode, but, um, the, this movie, this budget, here you'll see the budget kind of, this is where <laughs> I think the budget really shows itself. Not that it was a small movie, but you're like, oh wow, this movie had some money and this still was new Hollywood. So this was, um, uh, I don't think it was a critical failure. It was a financial loss. And around the time, King of Comedy, um, 
Heaven's Gate. Directors were having more of a more freedom, like some beautiful work they do. But if it wasn't uh, returning, then this is kind of like what led to them being more blockbuster. They wanted more guarantees on the returns. But yeah, I these, this movie has so much, so many different things and so many great it's not really a car chase here uh just to kill had a car chase but this is just the person a man trying to chase down a subway or get there first by any means necessary especially during a parade right this shot i was like oh i forget about it so many times when i watch it because it's not the first thing i think of when watching blow and i'm like oh yeah he is just driving through here and eventually, you know, he'll crash and then that'll show our time passage so we can catch up. But he is just full on panic here, not really thinking clearly because <laughs> I don't know what his plan is. Like, I know his plan is to drive through there, but it's just crazy the way he's going about it. And the way all this wraps up later, it's just very bizarre. I mean, it's only could happen in a movie because he gets out of the ambulance, all this chaos, and then I don't know if he ever stands trial or does anything or anything happens, but that's not really in part of the, part of the movie. It's just random stupid things that viewers like me are like, well, what the hell happened there? And uh, now they're on the waterfront here. And there's a lot of chaos going on, so this actually gives Jack the uh, ability to escape. The amount of time that passes, uh, I'm never 100% sure, but clearly it must have been like maybe 3 or 4 o'clock. And then this part's really like seeing the transition happen and Sally realizing she's in trouble. It's just really scary because... She knows that she's in trouble. Not immediately. It, it, she doesn't even realize immediately. He doesn't like puts on his gloves and uh, she sees the look in his eyes. And now Jack did put her in danger. Remember what she said? We could have just thrown this away. She's enjoying it. Uh, the music here is just... Oh, it's amazing. This is where Pino Donaggio really hits it out of the park with the suspense. And when I was watching this, this is where I feel like you see the proscenium, uh, like what I was saying with that trilogy. You see the slow motion. You know you're watching a movie, right? And it's so over the top. It's like an opera almost. Like if you're watching an opera, you know you're watching an opera. But it's um, you're so caught and and he he takes a lot of very grandiose uh, choices here. There's fireworks going on and the music, and then the slow motion run, which is just the most heartbreaking thing ever because you know he's not gonna make it. That's the thing about this movie. It's the suspense. 
what's going to happen, how's it going to happen. And based on everything that you've seen in the movie before, or movies you've seen before, you suspect that John Travolta or Jack's going to make it in time, save the day, happily ever after. Uh, but De Palma doesn't do that. It doesn't it, it stays authentic to how the characters have been the whole movie. Um, and then the, oof, the music, she hits him with the head, and then the, the boom, the scream that we will hear, and cut. He realizes where she is, the big American flag. And then the Liberty Bell rings, that's the day. Slow motion with excellent music here. And you see, he's running. But he's not gonna, he's not gonna make it. But I remember uh, I talked a lot with people and they're like, oh, I was, I thought he, she was gonna, he was gonna make it for a bit and I was almost upset. But it's the endings that stick with you because he doesn't make it, right? And you, I've watched this a lot of times and you think, how could he have done anything? No matter what, he was too late. It's just the situation. And is it his responsibility? Yes. And he feels responsible because this is the second time he failed. He walked in. He, his equipment or his, his existence caused somebody death i think that's the guilt he has that's his guilt complex is he is not comfortable causing someone death even though ironically he kills burke there and then you know the realization that he is responsible for this and he didn't save her, he couldn't save her, and his obsession pretty much caused him this. And that's what I think's great about this movie is just, you know, his obsession with trying to rectify the past or just trying to fix something that really was out of his element. Not like he wasn't intelligent enough, it's just it just wasn't going to happen. And this heartbreaking shot, which we will see a similar shot in a body double of this 360 pan, except they'll be engaging in a kiss. But, you know, he's cradling her while these fireworks are going off and she's dead. And the, even the theme that they have playing throughout the movie is just, it's tragic. You know, they're star-crossed to an extent. You know, the star-crossed lover's story is always, it's always going to be interesting, you know, because romance movies are really cool, you know, in their own relic. But the star-crossed lover's ones always, I feel, stick with you a little bit longer. It's like, oh, and they lived happily ever after. Because, you know, audiences want escapism. They want, they want a happy ending, right? They want something, you know, to make them feel good. And this is just a lot more gritty. It's very, really naturalistic. And then um, we have them wrapping it up. And 
The newscasters being the same throughout the movie uh, is a detail I like. Even the production value on that is just excellent. That's where I think, that's where a lot of the budget really helped this movie. Because this movie, you know, I don't know the, the budget right offhand, but its budget blew up because of John Travolta. John Travolta had worked on Carrie with De Palma and Nancy Allen, and then uh, Saturday Night Fever, Urban Cowboy, and then he's got this, and then De Palma's surprised. And then we have this scream, he's listening to it, and then they cut to the scream, which is perfect. And, you know, he this whole, the movie begins where the movie ends where it begins. It has that bookend feeling we had he does bookends in all three movies uh in dress to kill it's dream sequences with a blonde in a shower here we start with the movie and the bad scream and then the end of the movie he does get the scream he does everything before the credits sets us up that scream that was in the credits and he's haunted by it he's it's his biggest mistake but he does his job and he literally just goes right back to his life um, and it's really tragic. It's not like a movie that you can get sequels for. It's just, that's that, you know? Um, so for, you know, that playfulness of beginning and ending with the fake movie is also in uh, body double, uh, which I'll talk about next time. Um, I'm not sure how this one came out, uh, I don't know if this was better or worse than the previous commentary. I feel like I had a lot of ums and uhs and commented a bit, but I'm still working on this. So uh, thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. Find us at Quality Attempted. We're on Instagram. We are on YouTube. Um, uh, obviously, uh, SoundCloud. We're also on TikTok. Um, but hoping to do more things like this. Um, I think... It's a good exercise. Uh, I, I love watching movies with people and, you know, COVID and life and how everything has happened the last couple of years has changed that, but also, you know, fighting it or just, I'm not fighting it, just trying new ways to combat, I guess, the uh, boredom or trying new things. I don't know. But thank you so much for joining me. Uh, I've been Julian. I don't know if I, I say that. Uh, from Quality Attempted, and uh, I'll see you next time when we cover Body Double. Take care.